If you would, turn to Mark. It's the second book in the New Testament. Matthew, Mark. That's it. Second book. There it is. And uh, while you're turning there, let me say thank you to Jim Tuttle, who preached for us, with us, so adequately, so wonderfully, so beautifully last Sunday. We knew he was going to be awesome. We knew he was going to be great. That's one of the main reasons he's here. But you folks already have a preacher, okay? All right? Behringer, you already have a preacher, okay? Are we straight on that? Everybody good? Okay. Just wanted to get that clear, Jim. All right. We are today, we're beginning a brand new series. It's kind of a short series, just five, five little lessons here in the Gospel of Mark. And I love Mark. I love the rawness of Mark. Mark is like it's all action, right? There's no long buildups in the book of Mark. It's just boom, boom, just one story after another, a lot of immediacy. In fact, the word immediate is in Mark more often than it's in the rest of the New Testament combined. It's always like immediately Jesus went here and he did that. And then immediately Jesus went over there and he did this. It's just boom, 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 all these short little stories right in a row. And all these little stories are connected. They're all connected by these five threads are these five themes that run through the whole gospel of Mark. And these are discipleship themes. The gospel of Mark is a discipleship gospel. What that means is it's about following Jesus. The gospel of Mark is very concerned about us, you, me. It's very concerned about us as disciples of Jesus going where Jesus goes, doing the things that Jesus does, doing them the way Jesus does them. And so if we'll identify these five themes, if we'll learn how to uh, understand these themes and really get a handle and a grasp on these themes, I think it will change the way we read the Gospel of Mark. I also believe, by God's grace, it'll transform the way we follow Jesus. Back in 2003, okay, this is 20 years ago, I was at KRLD Radio in Dallas, and I was contacted by the Dr. Carter Eye Center in Dallas, and they said, we'll give you free LASIK surgery in both eyes if you'll just do our commercials for one year. Now, back then, everybody was doing that. Everybody in radio was doing this because radio will do anything if it's free. That's just kind of the way we are. We're kind of wired that way. So it was like if you're an anchor, if you're a personality, if you're a talk show host, if you're a sports reporter, whatever it was, all these eye centers in Dallas, they were contacting all the radio and TV people. If you'll do our commercials for one year, we'll fix your eyes. Well, I said, yes. Why wouldn't I, right? Now, this is hard for you all to believe. I wasn't always as cool as I am right now, okay? I used to wear glasses, and I mean not just glasses. I used, can you go ahead, Trina, and pop that up there? I had these huge, round, circular, I mean, these are like chicken little glasses, okay? That's what I used to wear. And so when Dr. Carter, please take that image off the screen now. When Dr. Carter called me and said, I'll give you 20-20 vision in both eyes, I'm like, I'm doing it. Let's go. All I got to do is do your commercials for a year, piece of cake. So we did the surgery on a Friday, late Friday afternoon. And I know it's a little different now, but 20 years ago, 
uh, it took like 30 minutes, but they bandaged up my whole head. Like I could not see anything. My eyes were completely bandaged up. Uh, half of my head was bandaged up. Carrie Ann had to lead me from the surgery by the hand into the car in the parking lot. And to her everlasting credit, she did not lead me into a utility pole or into the path of an oncoming truck. That was her opportunity. She didn't take it. But we get home late that afternoon, 5, 6 o'clock. I remember Carrie Ann had to kind of help me eat. I wasn't really that hungry. Whitney was 10. I remember she was trying to describe to me what the Dallas Mavericks were doing on the TV. I couldn't see. It was miserable. So I just went to bed. And it was a rough night. It was a long night. I was having dreams. I, was ha I thought my eyeballs had exploded and were running down my face at one point. It was a miserable night. I got up super early. It's Saturday morning. The rest of the house is sound asleep. I take the bandages off. I'm in the bathroom. I look in the mirror. I check my eyeballs. They're both there. I go into the shower. And I screamed at Carrie Ann, who was still asleep in the bedroom. I screamed, I can read the shampoo bottles. <laughs> Now, you got to understand, I got a wife and three daughters. There were like 457 bottles in that shower, right? There's bottles of shampoo and conditioner and extra protein and coarse hair, fine hair, ultra gentle, right? All this stuff. And instead of fumbling around for 10 minutes to find my one bottle, I saw it immediately. That 89-cent bottle of Suave, that's mine, and I was so thrilled about that. I can read the shampoo bottle. And I'm pumped, man. I'm ready to do these commercials because it worked. And I go into KRLD Monday morning. I've got the script already written. This is going to be a personal testimony. I can read the shampoo bottle. And I go into the studio and they tell me, you can't cut the commercial yet. Dr. Carter wants you to wait three months just to make sure everything's good. He does not want any, that's his policy, doesn't want anybody speaking for him or about him until they're perfectly certain that you're seeing everything correctly. So I waited the three months, we did the tests, we did the exams, everything was great, 20-20 vision, both eyes, and I did the commercials, and they ran for a year. But his policy was, you're not my spokesman until you're seeing correctly. Mark 8 Verse 22, right in the middle of chapter 8. This is a weird story. Jesus and his disciples came to Bethsaida, and some people brought a blind man and begged Jesus to touch him. He took the blind man by the hand and led him outside the village. When he had spit on the man's eyes and put his hands on him, Jesus asked, Do you see anything? He looked up and said, I see people. They look like trees walking around. Once more, Jesus put his hands on the man's eyes. Then his eyes were opened. His sight was restored, and he saw everything clearly. That is a weird story. It's a short story. There's some weird stuff in this story, right? Jesus takes the man outside the village before he heals him. Jesus spits on the guy's eyes, you've got trees walking around, right? The weirdest part of the story, though, is what? Jesus had to heal him twice, right? That is so weird. Like, it, it didn't take the first time. Jesus needed a do-over. And then when he does finally heal the guy on Jesus' second try, now he tells him, you go straight home. I don't want you going into the village. 
There's some weird stuff in this story. But there's no way to understand it unless you pull back and see how this story fits in with Mark's larger themes. This story does not make sense by itself. It only makes sense in the bigger picture of what Mark is doing with discipleship. And the bigger picture in Mark is that nobody sees very well. Nobody in this gospel can see. This blind man at Bethsaida, he sees, he sees something, but it's blurry. It's not clear. He, he doesn't see correctly. And again, this is just like everybody in Mark. Look at what surrounds this story, okay? If this story is the meat in a, in a chapter 8 sandwich, look at the piece of bread right before this story, the one right before this healing of the blind man. Jesus multiplies the loaves and fishes to feed the 4,000. Verse 13, they all get in a boat together. Jesus brings up the yeast of the Pharisees and Herod, and the disciples think Jesus is talking about a snack. And Jesus says, verse 17, do you still not see? Or understand. Verse 18, do you have eyes but fail to see? Jesus reminds them of what had just taken place. In verse 21, he says, do you still not understand? No. No, they don't. The disciples in the gospel of Mark are not real bright. And we'll see this a lot over the next few weeks. The way Mark writes, Jesus' followers are slow and they're confused and they ask dumb questions, and they make bad decisions, and they really don't understand anything at all. Ben Witherington says the gospel of Mark is the story of Jesus and his duh disciples. <laughs> and so verse 21, look at this. Jesus says to his duh disciples, he says, you still don't understand? And then the very next words out of his mouth, just two verses later, he's talking to the blind guy. Do you see anything? My disciples don't see thunder. Do you maybe, the blind guy, do you see anything? And the guy says, yeah. Well, not really. And then the very next story, at the end of chapter 8, Peter makes this confession at Caesarea Philippi. You are the Christ. And we're like, yes, Peter, you get it. You finally see you are the Christ. Way to go, Peter. You're awesome. Now you go preach that to the whole world. No, no, Peter can't because his vision is still blurry. Peter doesn't see clearly yet because when Jesus says, I'm going to suffer, I'm going to be rejected, and I'm going to be killed, Peter says, no, you're not. No, you're not. That, that is not going to happen to you, Lord. And so Jesus says, verse 30, don't tell anybody about me. You can't be my spokesman. You can't tell anybody about me or speak for me until you're seeing clearly. Do you see anything? That's the question throughout all of Mark. Throughout this whole gospel, everybody is trying to figure out who Jesus is, and nobody knows. Nobody gets it. Look at the very, very first sentence in the Gospel of Mark. All the way back to Mark chapter 1, verse 1, the writer lays out exactly who Jesus is. He tries to make it as clear as possible. This is the beginning of the Gospel about Jesus Christ, the Son of God. That's who Jesus is. 
Verse 11, Jesus is being baptized, and everybody hears God say, Jesus is my son. The evil spirit in verse 24, I know who you are. You're the Holy One of God. The evil spirits in chapter 3, you are the Son of God. The evil spirits in chapter 5, they're shouting at the top of their voices, Jesus, Son of the Most High God. Look at what Mark's doing here. He says, God knows who Jesus is, and he declares it. The demons know who Jesus is, and they're proclaiming it. Everybody knows who Jesus is. No, they don't. Nobody else in this whole book can identify Jesus. Nobody sees it. If you go back to chapter 1, verse 27, what is this? Chapter 2, verse 7, who is this? Chapter 6, isn't this the carpenter? Do you see anything? Does anybody see anything? And Jesus is telling, about, telling them about it very plainly. Over and over again in Mark, the son must suffer and be rejected and killed. The son must suffer, be rejected and killed. Over and over again, Jesus makes it plain, but the disciples say no. It's not going to be that way, Lord. And they argue about who's going to be the greatest in Christ's kingdom. Who's going to get the best seats? These are the disciples. These are the ones who are with Jesus every single day. They're not just blind. Part of the problem is they don't know they're blind. We're the same way. We're trained by our culture to see things a certain way. We're conditioned by our surroundings and the way that we've all been raised to only see things a certain way. Put that next slide up there, Trina. I want you all to turn to the person next to you. Tell them which card is on the right. Tell them right now. Which card is that? And now tell them which card is that on the left. Okay, the studies have shown that y'all are smarter than most people. Because the studies have consistently shown over the years, almost nine out of ten people will tell you that the card on the right is the six of hearts. And they'll argue with you about it. Because we only see what we've been conditioned, what we've been taught to see. And Jesus says, do you see anything? Do you see that the Christ has to suffer and be rejected and die? Do you see that? Because if you don't, then you're not seeing the whole thing clearly. If we don't see the suffering, if we don't embrace the, the rejection, if we don't understand the dying, then our picture of Jesus is incomplete. And the gospel we're preaching is only partially true. It's blurry. And so Jesus says, I want you to be quiet. I don't want you talking about me. I don't want you talking for me until you see everything clearly. The man with leprosy in chapter 1, don't tell anybody. Jairus and his wife in chapter 5, strict orders, it says. Jesus tells them not to talk about him. The deaf man in chapter 7, Jesus commands him not to tell anyone. And now Peter and his disciples in chapter 8, don't tell anyone. Sometimes we don't see what's right in front of us. We want to ignore or even correct the parts of Jesus that don't fit our own ideas or our own preferences, especially when it comes to suffering and dying. You know, if I'm following Jesus, 
I can't live my life the way I watch TV, right? I can't just lay on the couch with the remote control in my hand, and every time something uncomfortable or something demanding comes on the screen, I change the channel. I cannot look at Jesus through my consumeristic conditioned eyeballs, right? I can't look at Jesus and say, I'll take his healing and I'll take his love, but I don't want any of the ridicule and the scorn. I'll take his grace and I'll take his mercy and his forgiveness, but I don't want any of the rejection. I don't want any of the suffering. I want Jesus' resurrection. I'll pass on his death. I want to participate in his glory and his power, but not so much the cross. In 1979, the director of the National Religious Broadcasters Association said this, the law for preachers is you'll get your share of the audience only by offering people what they want. Neil Postman, who's one of my favorite all-time authors, if you see anything written by Neil Postman, just drop whatever you're doing and read all of it, okay? Neil Postman wrote this back in the 80s. Christianity is a demanding and serious religion. When it is delivered as easy and amusing, it's another kind of religion altogether. It's not Christianity. Every now and then somebody will tell me, it's easy being a Christian. I tell them, then you're not doing it right. It's hard. All right, go back to Mark chapter 8 and look, look at this verse 34. If anyone, these are the words of our Lord, if anyone would come after me, he must deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. Jesus is painting a vivid picture for his disciples. It's a cross. And we celebrate that, the cross, the image of the cross. We put it on our t-shirts and our necklaces and our bracelets and we get cross tattoos, you know, and we, not we, but some of us get cross tattoos. And, but, you know, we decorate our church buildings and our houses with crosses and rightly so. But look at this. Do, do you see anything? Everybody in a line behind Jesus carrying a cross. Now, the disciples... They know what this looks like. Public executions were not uncommon in that day. A person carrying a cross is a condemned criminal. He's cursed. Walking through town in shame and disgrace. People screaming at him. People cussing him. Spitting on him. People with the cross are despised and they're doomed. They're hated. Do you see anything? Do you see yourself in this line? The Apostle Paul saw it, and he was blind for three days in Damascus before he saw it. But listen to Paul from 1 Corinthians 4. It seems to me that God has put us on display at the end of the procession like people condemned to die. We have been made a spectacle to the whole universe, to angels as well as to people. We are fools for Christ. We are weak. We are dishonored. To this very hour, we go hungry and thirsty. We are in rags. We are brutally treated. We are homeless. When we are cursed, we bless. When we are persecuted, we endure it. When we are slandered, we answer kindly. Up to this moment, we have become the scum of the earth, the refuse of this world. Do you see anything? 
Jesus is speaking very, very plainly about this, but they still don't get it. And so Jesus says, oh, you're going to get it. You're going to see it. You're going to see the kingdom of God come with power. Okay, when's that going to happen? At the transfiguration? Yeah, that's part of it. But the kingdom of God comes with power at the cross. According to Mark, the cross, that's where we really see the Christ. Mark chapter 15. Go to the account of the crucifixion. Listen to the people at the cross and what they want. Verse 32, let this Christ, this King of Israel, come down now from the cross that we may see and believe. Nobody can see it yet. Verse 36, leave him alone, talking about Jesus. Let's see. Nobody sees yet. They want to. And then verse 37, with a loud cry, Jesus breathed his last. And when the centurion who stood there in front of Jesus heard his cry and saw how he died, he said, surely this man was the Son of God. He's the only one in Mark who says what God said about Jesus in the first chapter. Because everything becomes clear at Calvary. Nothing's blurry at the cross. Everything becomes very clear, even for this centurion, this pagan, idol-worshiping, bacon-loving Gentile. He sees it when he sees how Jesus dies. Seeing the kingdom of God come with power. That's about the cross. The very definition of glory and power is changed at the cross. Take up your cross and follow me. Okay, where are we going, Jesus? We're going to die. Jesus is not asking for us to make little adjustments and minor changes to our lives. He demands a complete overhaul. Jesus is not offering self-fulfillment or self-improvement or uplifting spiritual experiences. Church, he offers a cross. And he's not asking you to try on a cross for size and see if you like it or not. He's not asking for a few specially talented volunteers to carry a cross for some kind of spiritual extra credit. And we can survey the wondrous cross. We can kneel at the cross. We can love the old rugged cross till the cows come home. But Jesus calls us to carry the cross. Live the cross I've heard most of my life that Jesus died so I don't have to. That's not true. Jesus died to show me how to. To show me how to embrace suffering and rejection. To show me how to understand sacrifice and death as God's will for all of us. But we have to look at the cross. I think we'll see everything a lot more clearly if we just consider Jesus' death on the cross. A couple of things in particular. I think there are a couple of very, very hard things that we'll see more clearly when we consider Jesus on the cross. The first thing is, when you're suffering, 
Now hear me. When you're suffering, it may not be real clear to you why you're suffering. Now I know not everybody in this room is suffering right now. Some of you are. Some of you, I know, because I know your stories. I know some of you in this room right now, you're in a place of pretty dark and terrible pain and suffering. And you may have no reason, you don't know why. There's no reason for your pain. You can't understand it. Just like the disciples couldn't understand the suffering of Jesus. Maybe the reasons for your suffering are not real clear. But I think when you see Jesus on the cross, you can at least know what are not the reasons for your suffering. It's not that God doesn't love you. He does. He loves you very much. You know, Jesus hung on that cross in agony. But the Father's love for the Son was not diminished. It wasn't compromised, not one bit. And it's not that God doesn't have a plan for you. And it's not that God has abandoned you. The cross actually shows us God's presence in the middle of suffering. It shows us that God's at work. He is doing marvelous things. He's doing eternally significant things, even in the middle of your suffering. Even when your suffering doesn't make sense, God is present. And He loves you. He loves you very much. And the second thing is, when we see how Jesus dies, we see very clearly how God is saving the world. We see how God is transforming the world and how our God intends to win the victory. Church, politicians are not going to save this world. Platforms and parties are not going to change this country. This country and this world are not going to be won by votes or armies or power or partisanship or money or by violence. Only our God in Christ can save this world. God only, amen? And our God, His way is the way of death. His way is the way of sacrifice and the way of suffering. God's will is to save people and change people, not by force or threat, not with anger or self-righteousness, but with humility and love and forgiveness and grace and peace. This world will not change when more Christians vote. This world will change when more Christians serve. This country will not change when Christians get their man or woman in the White House. It will only change when Christian men and women get sacrifice and service in our hearts. This world will not change when the church is in power. This world will change when the church is persecuted for righteousness' sake and suffers for doing good. This country will not be changed when our enemies are shot or bombed or destroyed, but when our enemies are forgiven and prayed for and loved. Do you see anything? Because when you see the way he dies, I think you see everything very clearly. One last thing. Look at Mark chapter 10. Here's the last thing. This is the only other blind guy in the whole book of Mark. There's only two. Here's the other one. This is Jesus' very last miracle. This is his final healing as he enters Jerusalem in the last days of his life. 
So he's almost there. What Jesus came to do, he's about to do it. And blind Bartimaeus calls out to Jesus, Son of David. That's the messianic title, right? It's just like Mark to show us the only person in the whole gospel who sees Jesus for who he is is the blind guy, right? And Jesus says, what do you want me to do for you? What do you want me to do for you? Jesus had just asked James and John that exact same question in the previous scene. Same words, same order, same question. What do you want me to do for you? James and John wanted power. They wanted authority. They wanted to sit on a throne and be in charge. Pilate asked the crowd the exact same question in chapter 15. What do you want me to do? Crucify him. Herod in, uh, is it chapter 6? Where is it? Herod asked his dancing stepdaughter the same question. What do you want me to do? I'll give you anything. She wants John the Baptist's head on a serving tray because she's going to destroy whoever gets in the way of her family's lifestyle. The rich young ruler in chapter 10, he wants eternal life. He wants all the glory and no, the su no suffering. He wants the kingdom of God, but he also wants all of his possessions and his comfort. And then Jesus asked this blind guy along the way to Jerusalem, sitting by the way, it says, this way that's leading Jesus not to a throne of gold in the middle of the temple in the center of the capital city, but to a rugged cross in a rock quarry outside the city gates. What do you want me to do for you? I want to see. And it's done. Your faith has healed you. And there's no blur this time. There's no double vision. Bartimaeus sees clearly. He sees perfectly. This guy now sees everything, and he leaves his cloak behind. I'm assuming it's the only thing this guy owned. But he tosses it aside, and the Scripture says he follows Jesus along the way. Along the way that leads to sacrifice and suffering and pain and salvation. Do you see anything? Peter finally did. Peter finally saw Jesus as the suffering and dying Savior he is. And Peter's vision of discipleship as, as ridicule and rejection and suffering and death, that, that finally came around too. Listen to the apostle from 1 Peter chapter 4. Dear friends, do not be surprised at the painful trial you are suffering as though something strange were happening to you. But rejoice that you participate in the sufferings of Christ so that you may be overjoyed when his glory is revealed. If you are insulted because of the name of Christ, you are blessed for the spirit of glory and of God rests on you. If you suffer as a Christian, if you suffer as a Christian, do not be ashamed, but praise God that you bear that name, Christian. Jesus asks, what do you want me to do for you? And if you say, well, I want to see. What you're going to see is persecution, ridicule, rejection, suffering, pain, and death. What you're promised 
is the exact same exaltation and glory the Son now has right now at the right hand of the Father in heaven. Praise God. What do you want me to do for you? Bartimaeus acted immediately. Do you see anything? Stand with me, church. Let's sing.